Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us to this uh, chapter in Matthew 14. And um, we're going to look in particular at the narrative running from verse 22 and um, paying um, close attention to Peter's words at the end of verse 30. Lord, save me. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, it seems to me, was integral to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He spent so much time in and around and even on the Sea of Galilee that it has retained a special significance ever since then. And most people visiting the Holy Land, and some of you present here this morning, I know that you have visited on occasion in the past, they want to stand on the shore of Galilee, and they want to imagine Jesus standing there. Now, I've never done it. I would like to do it, but I am aware that it is a very, very fine line between having a sense of awe about such things and superstition. It's a very, very fine line. And overt religious superstition is so common in our world today and indeed throughout the Christian church. And it is far too easy for any of us to fall into that type of religious superstition in numerous ways. So we have to be on our guard against that. Now, in the context of this story, we have two other significant stories appearing before this one. The first is Jesus being told of the tragic death of John the Baptist in verses 3 down to 12. And after his gruesome death, we read in verse 12, the disciples came and took his body and buried it and told Jesus. Now, we can imagine, to some degree at least, the impact this must have made upon uh, our Lord Jesus. They were, um, I like to think, although we don't have any account of much interaction between them until John appeared in the scene of time, but I'd like to think that there must have been some interaction because their mothers were cousins, they were co-ages, and um, Jesus, along with his family, visited Jerusalem um, at least on a semi-regular occasion uh, once a year, and it's unthinkable that they wouldn't have visited the family of John. So I would guess that this news would have impacted our Lord greatly. So immediately, and I think there's a token of the effect it had on him, we read in verse 13, when Jesus heard this, he departed by ship into a desert place. Our incarnate Lord 
was so very human. So very human. His pity, his mercy, his compassion were never far from the surface, even when he himself was in the midst of intense suffering. So still in his mourning for John the Baptist, and possibly in compassion to the multitudes that followed him to this desert area, he performed this miracle of feeding the 5,000 in verses 14 to 21. Now, it is a pity, of course, that the disciples who witnessed that marvelous miracle, and um, these words trip off the end of our tongue with ease. He fed 5,000 people with a handful of bread and a handful of fish. We don't stop to think 5,000 with five loaves, two or three fish. What a miracle that must have been. But the disciples missed the most important part of that miracle. We know that because Jesus later rebuked them for it. This is in chapter 16, verse 9. Do you not understand, he said to them? Do you not even remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets took you? Now, in my own understanding of how this narrative is set out for us, that in part is why this incident with Peter on the waters of Galilee immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the, the, the crucial aspect at the heart of all that can happen to ourselves. And dare I say, it does happen to ourselves, and it happens very often. I mean by that, we can witness amazing things at the hand of God amazing things, and yet not appreciate their true significance. How many of us truly rejoice? How many of us fall on our knees when we hear a man or a woman, a boy or a girl has been converted? That's one of the greatest miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performs in this world. It's a miracle and nothing but a miracle. And if you are here this morning, a professing Christian, believing that the Lord has transformed your life, you are a living, walking miracle. Whatever you think of yourself, or whatever others might think of you, we can miss the very essence of such miracles very easily. So let's look first of all then at the Lord of Providence. Jesus as the Lord of Providence. When he heard about John the Baptist, our Lord was located on the northwestern, if you can imagine the Sea of Galilee in your mind's eye, he was located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But the desert place mentioned in verse 13 here, that's on the northeastern shore of 
the Sea of Galilee, to which he traveled by boat with the disciples. Now, that was the location of the miracle of the 5,000. Now, <clears throat> other people traveled there, a multitude of people, as we read, traveled there, but they must have traveled on foot. Um, we read in uh, verse 13, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So as Jesus had traveled across the water to the northwestern corner, the multitudes who, who had been observing his ministry, they must have walked on the northern tip of, of the Sea of Galilee. What a sight that must have been. Of all 5,000 of them left their towns and their villages and walked around there. People must have been asking, what's going on? Where are all these people going? Well, in any case, when they were fed, Jesus dismissed them. Verse 22, he sent the multitude away. And I guess that they must have walked back. They walked there and they must have walked back. Whereas the disciples were to return by the same boat they took going over there. I assume it belonged to one of them. Now, as they went aboard that boat, again, let's imagine this. As they climbed into that boat on the shore of Galilee, they must have asked, why isn't he coming with us? Why are we leaving him behind on the shore? Although that's not recorded, surely they must have been asking why he wasn't there. So the picture is that he dismissed everybody, including the disciples, to make their way back to where they came. Then without any explanation to the disciples, verse 23, he went up to a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Nobody seemed to have asked him why. However, this is exactly how the Lord wanted things to suit his own purpose in providence. This is exactly how he wanted things. So throughout history, my friends, Jesus Christ is always ordering providence in all its parts. And that means that people can be exactly where he wants them to be, whatever the implication for individuals. Now, you are here this morning partly because you happen to come to church. But you are here also because this is the providence that Jesus Christ has ordered for you for whatever reason. Now, in this instance, and for various other reasons, our Lord needed time alone with God. He needed time alone with God. It's hard for us to know what effect the performing of miracles had on Jesus. It's evident that some of those miracles, at least, made an impact upon him. They affected him physically, probably psychologically and mentally as well. For example, is the woman with the issue of blood. 
Most of you will know that narrative well. In Mark chapter 5, we read these words. Jesus, this is after curing that woman with the issue of blood. Jesus immediately knew that virtue had gone out of him. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what it means. But taking it at face value, something happened in our Lord in the process of healing that woman. Virtue had gone out of him. Now, did the performing of all great miracles have a similar effect on him? although it's not recorded. Here's two miracles in rapid succession. The feeding of the 5,000 and the one that's about to take, take place with Peter on the water. Was the challenge of those miracles, plus the news of the death of John the Baptist, was that why? He sought quality time alone with God up on that mountain. If I can put it crudely, was he charging his batteries? Did so much virtue go out of him? And did he sense that even more would go out of him? That he needed something from his heavenly father. Well, in any case, the disciples found themselves fighting the storm, verse 24. The ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary or against them. Now, let's stop there for a while and ask, was this a miscalculation by these disciples? Because these disciples were experienced fishermen, they knew the Sea of Galilee very well. Now, although Galilee was and continues to be prone to sudden storms, there were always indications. And these men would recognize if a storm was coming, even one of those sudden ones for which Galilee was known. Was this a miscalculation? Would they have set sail? if they knew that a storm was coming? We can only conclude, my friends, this was not a natural storm. This was not a natural storm. No weatherman on the face of the earth could have seen this storm come. It was a storm commanded by Jesus Christ, the Lord of Providence, the Lord was authority over all the elements of nature. This was as ordered for as a storm as the storm that overtook the boat Jonah was in. That wasn't a natural storm. That was a storm ordained from heaven for that specific purpose. So they didn't see the storm coming, but Jesus knew. He commanded the storm, yet, verse 22, straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship. In other words, he compelled them. 
He urged them so strongly that they had no choice but to go into the boat, despite knowing about the storm. Here's what God does, my friends. When he recognizes stubbornness in our hearts. Oh, it may not be as dramatic as this, but this is what God does when he recognizes stubbornness in the hearts of boys and girls and men and women. He will box you into a corner and he will compel you to listen, to learn, and to obey. These men fail to see what should have been obvious to them, the lesson behind the feeding of the 5,000. Now, Jesus is about to teach them the exact same lesson. It's a lesson on faith, but it's going to take place in a far more dramatic way. And he's going to teach it not to 5,000 people, but to 12, and to one in particular. Oh, my friends, we should remember this. We should remember this. If we or any of you here this morning, if you are stubbornly refusing to listen, to learn, and to obey from the hand of the Lord, he will box you into a corner, and he will compel you to listen one way or another. And he will use providence to do so. Now, you know, my friends, Sometimes that can be a sore and bitter lesson to learn. A sore and bitter lesson. If you were to ask men like Jacob, Moses, David, this very man Peter, they all missed significant things that they should have learned on the learning curve of their relationship with God. But God taught them in the end. And for some of them, what a bitter lesson that was. He will gain your attention one way or another. Let me move on, secondly, to look at Jesus, the Lord of the storm. Lord of providence, then the Lord of the storm. Now, these fishermen slash disciples found themselves, if I can put it this way, prisoners to feet. They left Jesus behind. Now, they're surrounded by darkness. They're rowing against a storm, and they're getting nowhere. You know, when I was preparing this, I was thinking, this is like a parable on the lives of those who refuse Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Like a parable. Aren't they in darkness? Aren't they rowing hard against the storms of life? And aren't they getting nowhere? Well, being in a storm at sea is bad enough. But being in a storm at sea in the dark, that's infinitely worse. And for these disciples, it continued until three o'clock in the morning. Verse 25, the fourth watch of the night. Now, according to how the Jews compute time, that fourth watch began at 3 a.m. our time. Now, there's no question in my mind that these men would have set sail in the daylight. They would have had allowed enough time for them to get back over to the western shore. So they were in the storm for many, many hours. Now, notice the picture. 
verse 24, they were in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, the wind contrary. They could not make progress. Just like those people who try to save themselves by their own ways, by their own means, by their own religiosity, by their own goodness, you will never, ever make the progress you need to make. It's a despairing situation all round. Were it not, were it not for the Lord of Providence and the Lord rules over every storm. We were singing a moment ago, he slumbers not, nor sleeps. And we're going to see the significance of that as we go through this uh, story. Now, there's a beautiful picture of our Saviour in uh, of our Savior as the Savior in the Song of Solomon in chapter 2. Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. And every time I read this story, and the Lord Jesus coming to the rescue of these disciples, I think of that phrase. I imagine him leaping upon the mountains, skipping over the hills, making his way to his people in such desperate need on the Sea of Galilee. Though he is the Savior, his time of prayer and fellowship with his Father is over. And about the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, he came to them walking upon the sea. What a sight. What a sight that must have been in the midst of a storm. It'd be amazing enough to be walking on the water, but he's doing it in the midst of a storm, howling wind, churning seas. But there he was, Lord over all the elements of nature. Now, the world mocks any suggestion that walking on water is possible, yet here was Jesus doing what men insist is impossible. So like a lifeboat arriving beside a stricken vessel, Jesus gave the disciples every reason to rejoice. Every reason. But they didn't. They didn't. And they didn't rejoice for two reasons. One, uh, this detail isn't in this Matthew's account of the story, but Mark has recorded this in Mark chapter 6. He walked upon the sea and would have passed by them. He gave them the impression that he was ignoring them, that he was going to leave them in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the mess that they were in. That must have been a moment of panic for these disciples. But my friends, this was all part of their testing, part of their testing. So that's one reason why they didn't rejoice. He thought he was going to walk on past. The second reason they didn't rejoice, they assumed that he was a ghost. This is hard to believe. Verse 26, they were troubled, saying, it's a spirit. So instead of rejoicing, we read in verse 26, they cried out for fear. This is what will happen to anyone 
who ignores Jesus Christ, sooner or later, you are going to cry out in fear. Now, isn't it incredible? They didn't believe Jesus, that it was Jesus, but they were more than ready to believe in a ghost. How incredible is that? I think it probably echoes the attitude of most Jews at that time. They were happy to have Jesus as a king ruling over them, as a reincarnation of David in the Old Testament, but they would not have him as their Messiah. We will not have this man to rule over us. So here's Jesus demonstrating his lordship over the elements of nature, doing the impossible before their eyes, yet all they could see was a ghost, something that doesn't even exist. Ah, how perverse, how deceitful the human heart is, as Jeremiah puts it, deceitful above all things. And that's true particularly when it comes to the things of God and the things of the gospel. The heart sees what it wants to see. The heart believes what it wants to believe. The heart does what the heart wants to do. Hence, these men prefer to see a ghost when it was actually Jesus that was standing in front of them. It's not true of so many who sit under the gospel. The evidence of a crucified, resurrected Savior, the evidence of God's way of salvation, the evidence of God's promise of love, mercy, pardon, and forgiveness, it's all there in front of you. In the most reliable historical account that was ever written in the scene of time, your Bible is the best evidence you could ever have. Yet do you believe? Do you see Christ in your Bible? Do you see that cross and all that it means? Do you see that empty grave? Let me ask you this, those of you who are not committed Christians here this morning. Do you believe in ghosts? Are you like these disciples, believing in ghosts? But they wouldn't believe that it was Jesus. Does that describe you? Let me move on thirdly to look at Jesus, the Lord of salvation. <coughs> Verse 28, Lord, Peter said, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Immediately prior to this, Jesus quelled their fears by saying to them, verse 27, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now, if I were to tell somebody who was in a dangerous situation, a really dangerous situation, life-threatening situation, I don't worry about it. Don't, don't be afraid. 
What response would that person give me? Would they be filled with joy? I don't think so. These were more than mere words that Jesus spoke when he said, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. These were more than mere words. And this is the difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatest preacher or the greatest witness for the gospel that ever lived. We can only speak mere words, my friends. Mere words. Whereas, when he speaks, he speaks with words and with power. He brings the words home to your mind and to your conscience in a way that no mere man ever could. Though his own presence and his own words coming together can have, have an effect that no mere preacher, no mere witness can ever generate. Now we see the result here in Peter's response in verse 28. Uh, we're going to look at this in a little bit of detail. Remember, we look at here at an experienced fisherman, and he's in the midst of a raging storm. He believed only a moment ago that the man standing in front of him was a ghost. But now, on hearing the words of the Lord, be not afraid, he said, to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, command me to leave this boat. Command me to stand on those raging waters. Verse 28, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And that word, that verb, bid, it's in the imperative. It is a command. Compel me to come. And he's asking for this impossible miracle for one reason and one reason only. He was seeing Jesus doing the same impossible miracle right in front of his eyes. And this is what faith can do, my friends. And it's hard to find a better example of it in the whole Bible. So Jesus responded, this is very important. Peter responded to Jesus one word. That's all Jesus said to him. One word. Verse 29. Come. Just that, on the overture for that one single word. Come. Peter obeyed. And that's the best indication of true vital faith. When men and women and boys and girls obey just one word from the living God and from his Christ. Oh, meanwhile, we can only imagine the tension and the fascination, of course, aboard that boat as the rest of the disciples watched Peter standing up and clambering over the side of the boat. Verse 29. Peter came down out of the ship and walked on the water to go to Jesus. 
the most important words in that phrase, to go to Jesus. To go to Jesus. Now, this picture is telling us two things. First of all, it's telling us that when Peter stood up and stepped out of that boat, he wasn't doing that merely in his own strength, nor merely by his own faith. He was doing it because he was being constrained to do it by Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul uses this phrase in the letter to Corinthians? The love of Christ constrains us. He draws us. He compels us. He impels us. He energizes us ever closer to his own bosom. And he does it without one moment violating our will. He makes us willing in a day of his power, as Psalm 110 puts it. So that's the first thing we're taught by this picture. Jesus was constraining him toward himself. The second thing is that Peter had his eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus. Firmly fixed on him. Just as Hebrews 12 puts it, looking unto Jesus. Not at anybody else. Not at anything else. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Here's the result when you do that. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. In other words, he did the impossible. Simply by looking to Christ. Simply by obeying that one word from Christ. He did the impossible. And that's emphasized for us in the strangest way. By what happened next? Peter allowed the glory of that moment to become shrouded with unbelief and with doubt. Distracted by the storm, he lost focus. Because of the wind and because of the waves, he lost focus. And here's what happened. Verse 30, his feet began to sink. And that, my friends, is what happens if and when we are no longer looking unto Jesus. And is that not the problem for multitudes of people, even within the Christian church? The multitude of distractions in the world draw multitudes of people away from Christ. You watch out for those distractions in your own life, whether you are young or old here this morning. It takes very little, my friends. It takes so very little to distract you from the focus you ought to have on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, time is running out. Believers today, you're not, you're not expected to walk on water. You're not expected to demonstrate your faith by doing something of that nature. But I know this. If you are a believer here this morning, God may very well, in his providence, 
God may very well, my friends, expect you to climb very, very high mountains. God may very well expect you to tread very, very dark valleys. God may very well expect you to walk through very hot fires in your life. How many of the Lord's people are discovering this when they're dealing with serious health issues, their own or within the circle of their family, facing huge domestic problems, when they have to make life-changing choices and decisions? In the midst of all that, my friends, your feet may very well begin to sink, spiritually speaking. But if so, you remember what Peter did. Now, to me, this is one of the most important parts of the story. Again, with sanctified imagination, there's the boat with 11 disciples, good friends of Peter, there's Peter, and he could only be two or three feet away from the boat. There's a storm all around him. There's Christ in front of him. The Christ he thought a moment ago was a ghost. Now, as his feet began to sink, he didn't turn round to the boat, which he knew was very real. He didn't call upon his friends, whom he knew were very real. Oh, no. He called out to the Savior, Lord, save me. He knew the disciples couldn't help. He knew that he couldn't help himself. He knew there was only one who could help him and one who could save him. Lord, save me. And perhaps more important and significant words will never come from your own lips. Lord, save me. Remember Messiah's declaration of himself through the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63. I that speak in righteousness. What comes after that? Mighty to save, mighty to save. There is no one present here. Indeed, there is no one on the face of the earth that Jesus Christ cannot save if they will but call on him in the way Peter called on them here. Lord, save. What does Jesus do in response? He doesn't hesitate. Not for a second. Verse 31. Immediately, I like that word, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. But he also brought hope to all over in the boat. Verse 32, when they came into the ship, the wind ceased. That's why I'm of the opinion this, this wasn't a natural storm. Now, my friends, I have to close with this. This is what we must do. We have to remember that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. That the Lord is always willing to reach down into the depths of that fearful pit and into that miry clay to draw those that will call on him to himself. 
to do what Peter was begging here. Lord, save me. You make sure, my friends, that these words have already escaped from your lips, and if not, let them escape from your lips before the Sabbath day is over. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank thee for thy wonderful word once again. We thank thee for these stories that have been recorded for our benefit and how suitable they continue to be, regardless of the changing scenes of time and how the world becomes more and more sophisticated. Yet this remains the same. There is only one name given under heaven by whom we must be saved, Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us together. Prepare us for what remains of the day. For his name's sake, amen.